Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today's podcast is actually quite a bit different than usual. Assuming that all goes according to plan, next week we will have Corey Doctorow on the podcast. Now, he's been on the podcast multiple times before, talking about a variety of different things. But this time he's coming on to talk about his latest novel, Red Team Blues, which came out a couple months ago. And as a primer for our conversation next week, this week we're going to be playing an excerpt from the audiobook, which was expertly narrated by Will Wheaton. The excerpt that we're playing is actually chapter 10 of the book, which is something of a transition chapter in the book between the story in the first nine chapters uh, and then which then sets up the uh, story in the rest of the book. Uh, While Corey is often thought of as a science fiction writer, Red Team Blues is really more of a thriller centered around the main character, Martin Hench, who is a 67-year-old forensic accountant whose career is based on tracking down usually questionably obtained and then questionably hidden money. Uh, As is repeated throughout the book, his expertise is really in playing the red team, the term that is normally applied to those in wargaming situations where their job is to break a system, whether to destroy something or just get access to hidden information. That's opposed to the blue team, whose job is to protect those systems and set up the defenses. As you might guess from the title of the book, Red Team Blues, uh, it is about what happens when Hench is suddenly forced to play the blue team, trying to protect himself uh, rather than his usual red team process of trying to break into systems. The uh, chapter that you're about to hear happens right after he's discovered a stolen cryptographic key that, if it got into the wrong hands, would basically destroy a fictional cryptocurrency called Trustless Coin. And uh, it would also probably destroy a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, You can read the book to find out the details. Uh, He's done this, Martin Hench has done this job uh, as a sort of a favor to the creator of Trustless Coin, who is an old friend of his, a billionaire named Danny Laser. The chapter is about him finishing that particular job and getting his compensation, which then leads into the next part of the book, in which he suddenly finds himself targeted by a variety of challenging adversaries, uh, often at odds with each other. It's a it's a fun read. The entire book is actually a, a relatively quick read, uh, and so I'd suggest if you haven't read it yet um, and you want to hear the conversation next week, uh, try to read it before you do so. Uh, again, it's a quick and fun read. And it's one of those books that once you start reading it, you're not going to want to put it down because you're going to want to find out what happens. Uh, So I would suggest picking up the book and and giving it a read. But either way, here is chapter 10 of Red Team Blues to whet your appetite in the meantime. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. And taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize them through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. 10. I sent a pic of the barcode to Danny by signal, setting the message to delete itself after one day. Then I deleted it from my phone and drove back to the hash for a very large bourbon and two of those gummies. Danny called before I dropped off and I bumped into voicemail with a text message. Taking the rest of the day off. There was a long pause. Then he replied, you've earned it. Talk tomorrow.
Another pause. Is it secure? The gummies were starting to kick in, making me feel gloriously stupid and discorporeal. All I wanted to do was sleep, but obviously he deserved an answer. I'll sleep with it under my pillow. I set my phone to do not disturb and slid the laptop under my pillow. This time, Danny opened his door in a pair of genuinely fantastic pajamas. Regimental stripe, heavy cotton, cut to flatter an older body by hanging rather than clinging, monogrammed DML over the right breast pocket. I'd seen a set like that in the men's section at Fortnum & Mason near Piccadilly Circus once. They'd been 350 pounds, and I couldn't justify spending that kind of money, not even for genuinely fantastic pajamas. Maybe I'd charter a jet to London and buy a pair. He shook my hand solemnly as I came through the door, then accepted the bag from me. I'd stuffed the laptop bag into a gym bag and padded it with a couple of my clean hand towels from the neatly tied parcel I'd picked up at the wash and fold in Muir Beach. I didn't want to walk into the Real apartment carrying a laptop bag last seen in the possession of Alice Kokurek, Gia Hawk, and Sergei Preobrazhensky. He hefted the bag. I need a few minutes. Would you mind showing yourself onto the roof? You know the way, right? Help yourself to anything you need from the kitchen. Sethu is out. No pretense that she was running any errands. She'd been sent away. This was a meeting between Danny Laser and me. For a very brief moment, I wondered if he'd try to kill me. It was only a fleeting thought because Danny Laser wouldn't lift a finger to me or anyone else for that matter. He was passionate and brilliant, but gentle. Nevertheless. I had the thought, considered the thought, and then dispelled it because having that kind of thought is my job, which is why I was ready to retire. I found a pitcher of fresh-squeezed blood orange juice next to a hand juicer and a bowl of juiced-out orange rinds. I poured myself a glass and went out onto the roof deck to admire Sethi's canvas. It was still an abstract. She'd scraped away a lot of the bright colors I'd seen the last time, replacing them with moody grays. It was all jangles and angles. I didn't think I liked it. He joined me after about half an hour, carrying the laptop. He opened its lid and showed me the holes he'd drilled through the keyboard, popping off the keycaps from the shift to the V, the caps lock to the G. They were through and through holes, right through the hard drive beneath them. Never saw the use for a caps lock key, I said. He gave me the ghost of a smile. This is just a temporary measure, best I could manage with my little hand drill. I have a secure disposal company coming by in an hour. They bring a truck right up to the entrance, then take the machine and drop it in this grinder like a paper shredder that can handle a whole laptop, reduce it to fragments no bigger than a fingernail clipping in under a minute. So you're out of the keys business. I am, he said. I never should have been in that business. It was stupid, vanity, not wanting to have my mistakes on display forever. Jesus, what an idiotic thing to worry about. I shrugged. Mistakes happen, I said. He grimaced. Those kids certainly learned that. I nodded. They had. They'd paid a price for their mistake. Danny was going to pay too, but he'd get to walk away from his mistakes. Alive, regretful, and 25% poorer. I'm certain that the people who stole your authentication token 
never touched this computer. That means the keys were never accessed, and the trussless coin system is completely intact. He stared at Palo Alto, at the stayed boxes, full of frenzy. I concur with your assessment. Danny, can I ask, what is the value of the assets in the trustless coin ledger? I'd looked it up that morning, but I wanted to hear it from him. I make it 1.2 billion. That was a little higher than the analyst report that I'd read had put it, but then Danny had better information about the status of the trustless ledger. Well, I guess that's a little too much for a cash transaction, I said. 25% of 1.2 billion was 300 million. That was the kind of number I kept out of my mind as much as possible over the preceding week and especially over the past 24 hours. I didn't want my thoughts about that payday mingled with mental images of those three kids. He looked at me for a very long, very considering moment. He tried to close the laptop's lid, but more of the keycaps had popped off, and so he had to settle for mostly closing it and setting it down awkwardly on the roof deck. It was weird to see him handle it so daintily, as if he hadn't just drilled it to pieces, as if he wasn't about to drop it in an industrial shredder. Marty, do you really think you should get $300 million for a week's work? You know the joke about the photocopier repairman, Danny? The one that goes, no, I kicked the machine for free. The 75 bucks was for knowing where to kick it. Yeah, I know that joke. Yesterday at this time, you were facing the near certain prospect of losing everything. Your honor, your reputation, your fortune. Ruination for you and your young wife. The years you've got left together and the years she's got left after you pass away. Today, you're back to building trustless coin. As I recall, you believe that you can put trillions of dollars into that blockchain in pretty short order. 10 to the 12th power dollars, as you put it. The reason for that sudden change of fortune is that I knew where to kick. He grimaced. Well, you put it that way, Danny. You and I never signed a contract. We've been friends a long time, and you knew what my deal was. So I trusted you. Remember how you told me your coins weren't really trustless? That they just moved trust away from people like Danny Laser in favor of the security engineers at a couple of chip foundries? He nodded warily. I don't trust those engineers. As I think we can both agree, they can be suborned. If I ever put any money into trustless coin, it won't be because of my faith in those engineers. It'll be because of my trust in Danny Laser. He opened his mouth, shut it again. I stood up and walked to the railing to look out at Palo Alto for a while. Danny joined me a few minutes later. Danny, I said, still looking at the city. If you can't afford my bill, you just say so. We've been friends a long time. He snorted. Martin the Mench Hench strikes again. You'll get every penny. You earned every penny. But you can't just hand over 300 mil. For one thing, Danny didn't have 300 mil in cash. His money was in units of real estate investment trusts owned by Estonian copies that were owned by Scottish companies. 
It was in SPACs based in Cyprus, whose directors were numbered Nevada companies. It was in LLCs that owned luxury flats in impossibly tall, thin spires in New York and London. It was in shares of art stashed in climate-controlled containers in the Freeport of Geneva. Transferring those assets was both simple and complex. Recording changes of shares in Bermuda and Edinburgh and Nicosia was a fiddly business, but there were lawyers who specialized in it. One of them was right there in Palo Alto, Ira Herman, a genial fellow in a loose-fitting, camel-colored cardigan who had his own notary stamp and a smart-looking woman whom he was training up who served as a witness on the signature blanks. I had to drop into his office four times that week, producing wet signatures on documents that were stamped, witnessed, and FedExed to distant corners of the world. He kept records on a laptop that was disconnected from the internet, making printouts on a big humming laser printer and clipping them neatly and putting them in folders. All those folders went into a fireproof lockbox, along with a USB stick containing digital versions. Ira handed me two of these and advised me to put one in a safe deposit box and give the other one to my lawyer. I asked him if he'd be my lawyer. I liked the way he operated, even if the majority of his work was in service to helping crooks of one kind or another hide their assets from the law and the government. He took off his readers and folded them and tucked them into the cardigan's breast pocket and gave me a brief smile. Mr. Hench, all appearances notwithstanding, I am no longer practicing. This kind of work is something I do for a few valued old clients who predate my retirement, like Danny Laser. I've worked some very long hours under a lot of pressure down through the years, and I'm taking the time I've got left to do some good work in this world. Well, that seems laudable. I might be in the market for doing some good with my time. Do you mind if I ask what you've found to do? I raise money for climate charities, Herman said. Direct aid for solarizing and weatherizing housing in the 10% poorest U.S. zip codes. There's a group of us who raise the funds, but they're locally administered by community groups that are right there on the ground. That sounds like good work, all right. I swallowed my next words. You look like you've got something more to say, he said. Not really, I said. A tight-lipped smile. Mr. Hench, I know what you did for a living. You could say that we're both veterans of a long guerrilla war between people who want to hide money and people who want to find it. I'm guessing that you're thinking about how much money those local communities might have if the landlords and business owners and other beneficiaries of the wealth created there hadn't been able to make their winnings disappear. I smiled, something like that. He shrugged. You'll get no argument from me here. It's what I'm good at. And I did it, and it paid well. One day, I realized that I had enough hidden away myself that I didn't have to do it anymore. And I decided that would be it for me. But because I'm an honorable man, for certain values of honorable, I couldn't just walk away from it all. I had to wind up loose ends for the people I'd served. I guess if Danny Laser were my client, I'd want to do right by him too. Danny is good people, but not all my clients are. A lot of them are monsters. Real monsters. The great monsters of history. Of our era. 
but I have my honor. Which is why you didn't just hand your hard drives over to the IRS and start a new life under a false identity in remotest Mali, I said. The thought never crossed my mind, he said mildly. I don't pretend that these men, and a few women, that I served are better at allocating that capital than a democratic government might be, assuming such a thing can be found. Like I said, many of them are perfectly monstrous. But despite that, I am in no hurry to tell the authorities where those assets are stashed. If you did, you'd have to tell them where your assets are too, I suppose. He smiled again, lips even tighter. You say things that other people mostly just think, Mr. Hench. You did ask, Mr. Herman. Yes, I suppose I did. Let me ask you something. Now that you have all this money, what do you plan to do with it? Are you going to declare it as income, pay tax on it? If you do, you will still have something like 200 million to your name. That's a fascinating question, I said. It's certainly one I'll be giving some thought to. I'd be interested in knowing what your answer is. I'll let you know. In the meantime, I still need legal representation if only to have someone to hand this strong box over to. Is your assistant in the market for new clients? He chuckled, apologized. Zoe's practice is going to be a lot more active than you're likely to need. She's got ambition. Mr. Hinch, with a fortune of under half a billion, you don't really need the services of someone like Zoe or even me. Any of the big four consultancies will be glad to put your affairs in order. They'll do a perfectly respectable job and charge reasonable rates, provided you check the invoices over closely at least once a year to make sure no one is padding his billings at bonus time. You have a very large fortune, Mr. Hench but it's an off-the-shelf sort of fortune, the kind of thing that fits very neatly into a standardized template. The kinds of bespoke services offices like this provide are for people in pursuit of global domination, of a dent in the universe, of a dynasty, of their own libertarian island nation, or just their own senator. I get the strong impression that your pursuing days are over. That's true, I said. Like you, I find myself with enough to tide me over and no desire to do more of the kind of work that produced it. Wise choice, he said. Let me know if you'd like to make a donation to my fund. Put me down for a million. He didn't bat an eye. Easily done. I'll have the paperwork in a moment. I almost jumped in to say I'd been kidding. I had been, sort of, but not quite. And why not? I literally wouldn't miss a million bucks at this point. I couldn't do it every day, a million here, a million there, pretty soon, et cetera, et cetera. But I had the feeling that any charity Ira Herman ran would be an effective one. I waited patiently while he did the donation paperwork. He'd transferred title to a piece of undeveloped land on the big island to a numbered company. Zoe came in and witnessed the paperwork and gave me a smile that made me feel a little good about myself. They both stood there while I gathered up my document safe and put on my jacket and my uncle's old Air Force mechanics hat, frayed and soft as felt. It was a sincere pleasure to meet you, Mr. Hench. Make it Marty, I said. It's Ira, then, he said, and shook my hand. Zoe, 
I said, and shook her hand. Just before he left, Zoe put her hand on my elbow. Marty, before you go, can I ask you something? Anything, I said. I didn't care. She was smart and lovely and thought I was a good guy. She had pledged her life to helping the monsters of history hide their money, but so what? If no one did her job, I wouldn't have been able to do mine. I think maybe I was finally getting the giddiness of all that money. 10 to the $8 isn't 10 to the $12, but it's still a heady, heady sum. Ira told me what you did for a living. I understand you were very good at it. I suppose I was. Talking about it in the past tense gave me a little thrill. The money and all it meant were growing realer by the second. Well, you've seen how we operate. What I want to know is, if you were up against us, could you beat us? She held my gaze coolly, like she wasn't asking my help to commit unsolvable crimes. Funny you should ask. I've had a fair bit of time to sit around here and think about just those questions, waiting for this or that to happen, a document to print, or for a revision to be made. Yes? Yes. She cocked her head. Yes, what? Yes, I could unravel it. Not all of it, but most of it. Enough to get your clients into a position where they might tell the rest to negotiate a settlement. I see, she said. Would you be willing to share any of these methodological weaknesses? I'm always interested in understanding how the audit process works. I thought about it. You know, I don't think I want to do that. The IRS isn't going to be able to do what I do. For one thing, they have to tell you when they're coming after you, and then you can pay a very good firm of lawyers to slow them down. I get to work in sneaky ways that aren't available to the tax man. And given how starved the high net worth audit initiative is, your clients are more likely to be struck by a meteor than a tax penalty. But if someone really wants to track down the money you've hidden, I like the idea that they'll be able to recover some of it. Call it professional honor. I winked at Ira showily, and Zoe rolled her eyes. Fair enough, she said. I guess my self-improvement project will be an individual affair. Shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap.